NCAA and ESPN have reached a landmark deal focused on but not limited to women's sports. Plus, the Oakland A's continue to do strange and troubling things, and not everyone in Vegas is happy about the F1 race. Later, we are diving deep into the world of NIL. It's Friday, January 5th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The NCAA and ESPN have struck a new media rights deal beginning in September for $920 million over eight years. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So uh, first, let me just get your top line reaction to this deal. What's the big headline for you? Yeah, I mean, the big headline uh, for me is that this deal, so if you break it out, the average for each year is $115 million, um, $65 million of which are attributed specifically to the Division I Women's Basketball Tournament. Um, in all, that's three times uh, the average value of the current deal, which in this landscape is really, really good. Um, you know, everybody knows I would be the first second and third person to criticize the NCAA, especially when it comes to their treatment of women's sports. But um, the way that they were able to, um, you know, get this deal done, get $65 million a year for the women's tournament, um, and then get 39 other championships bundled into that, I think actually is quite a win um, for women's basketball and all of the other NCA sports that don't usually get the sort of visibility. So yeah, like I think like my top line is let's give credit where credit is due. Like this is actually a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get to championships two through 40 in a moment, but, but let's linger on the the women's basketball piece because it is more than half of the deal. Um, what, what's involved here and how did this deal come together? Yeah. So the number one question that we were all waiting for um, to be answered was whether or not the women's basketball tournament was going to be spun out and unbundled from the rest of these championships. Um, So Endeavor, the company that helped the NCAA do the deal, really like explored that model pretty thoroughly, Um, particularly because there was a lot of pressure from the women's basketball community. And then if you all remember, there was a gender equity report that came out in 2021 that said women's basketball alone could be worth $81 million a year. Um, ultimately, though, they sort of realized that maybe in a vacuum that it would be good to unbundle, but like the – the NCA had to look at the health of every single sport um, and they were able to, you know, ascribe a significant value to women's basketball. So ultimately the NCA made the decision to keep them all together. Um, ESPN tells me that the deal only really took a couple months to come together from like a details perspective since the two are really used to working together. Um, and obviously it was ESPN made it very clear that they wanted to continue this relationship. Um So a couple other things I do want to note, Um, there's a guarantee about women's basketball championship game being put on ABC, um, which is a huge win. There are um, contractual mandates for storytelling. I'm talking like documentary style, long form journalism. That is usually not something that is in any media rights contract as a requirement 
Um, and there are going to be 10 selection shows. So obviously that will refer in many cases to sports two through 40. But of course, the women's selection show, which has become more and more popular over the last couple of years, will continue, which is a huge win. So these these deals are always a moment when we see, you know, what is the actual value of of these leagues, these contests, these sports, uh, because, you know, we talk about the growth of women's sports a lot. And but this is where you, you get the actual dollar amount. Uh, so what does this say about, you know, the, the health of, of women's basketball specifically and in women's sports? Well, I think it's important to note that um, ESPN is not uh, beholden to Title IX or gender equity rules by any means. I mean, legally, technically, the NCA as an entity isn't either. Not going to get into that now. But what it means is that ESPN has put a lot of investment into elevating women's basketball specifically and these women's um, other women's sports because ESPN sees an upside, um, like a business upside not a moral or an ethical or an equity upside. So um, I think that's important to note. The other thing is, is that the amount of money that this deal is going to create is going to allow the NCAA to seriously at least consider, they say, creating a prize money structure for how well you do in the women's basketball tournament, which is something the men's does, but the women's doesn't. And so many women's basketball coaches have said that like, Fixing that inequity could be the number one way to improve just like women's basketball quality as a whole and equity. Um, so I think that's also a really important sort of um, trickle down of this deal. Again, we don't know for sure if the NCAA is going to do it, but they claim they're going to be taking it a lot more seriously now that they have more money. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Now <laughs> they got the funds, they can, they can, you know, maybe walk the walk a little bit more. Amanda Krisovich, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yep, thanks for having me. The Oakland A's don't plan to stay in Oakland, but while they are there, they want to be the only game in town. The Oakland Ballers, the Bees for short, are a Pioneer League baseball team launching this year. They'll play their home games at Laney College in Oakland, but they were also planning to play a game on June 29th at the Oakland Coliseum. The Coliseum does host events other than A's games, and those are managed by a firm called ASM Global. The Ballers' co-founders said that they had a signed contract with ASM, they had paid their deposit, they had a promo video ready to go, and then the A's used their exclusive rights to play professional baseball at the Coliseum to block the B's from playing there. Why do that when you already have one foot out the door anyway? I don't know, but given how much more full and energized the crowd was at last year's A's protest game, it's possible that the A's were worried about being badly outdrawn by the B's. And speaking of the A's, on December 4th, the team was set to release renderings of its future stadium in Las Vegas. They postponed that release date out of deference to a tragedy in which two Nevada State Troopers died. That was over a month ago, and we still haven't seen renderings. Throughout this process, the A's have tried to put the blame for everything that led to their move on Oakland. But since they have severed ties with Oakland, they have yet to show that they are a well-managed team that was stuck in an intractable city. If anything, they've shown the opposite. And staying in Las Vegas, a group of business owners is asking Clark County for compensation for millions of dollars lost due to the Formula One race there in November. We usually hear about these big events as boons for business in whichever city they take place in, but this group says that disruption from the track construction, which took months, and the placement of a temporary bridge, which will be there at least through the Super Bowl, which is also in Las Vegas, took a huge hit out of the revenue because customers had a difficult time physically accessing their buildings. Randy Markin, who runs a restaurant and casino in the affected area, told LV Sports Biz, quote, 
We as a community got bamboozled. We got fooled. This has not ever happened before. It just steamrolled out of control. Another business owner claims his revenue dropped from $8.5 million in 2022 to half that amount in 2023, and that he'll go out of business if that happens again. The group is threatening to file a class action lawsuit against Clark County, but they're hoping to avoid that by reaching an agreement out of court. Up next, I spoke to Brent Chapman, the CEO of My NIL Pay. Chapman is deeply involved in the world of NIL and its rapidly evolving future. We talked about top athletes getting millions, lesser known athletes getting next to nothing, and how that might all be changing soon. And that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by Brent Chapman, CEO of My NIL Pay. Welcome, Brent. Oh, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you on. So just to get us started, get to know you a little bit, um, what is My NIL Pay and how did you find yourself as CEO? So long before uh, I was the CEO of My NIL Pay, I, uh, I was the chief information officer, head of technology for three different financial services companies. So I worked my way up on the tech side, was a corporate tech executive, and I was actually just at a football, national football camp with my oldest son. And uh, we were talking to some of the, the, to the players about their NIL experiences. And um, my son and I walked away going, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? It's like, it just didn't sound great. It didn't, their experiences didn't sound like they were enriching them and helping them. And so I walked away with this idea of how to create in the, in the concept for what became my NIL pay. And yeah, what kind of issues or gaps did you see in that whole world? I mean, as I, as I left those conversations and started to dive into, is there a market here? Is there a business here? What, what is the real problem? The real problem is the top percentage of, you know, revenue generating sports and high profile athletes get the majority of the dollars. Right. And it wasn't really being distributed equally or at all for that matter to everyone else. So my NIL pay is an app where you can direct pay any student athlete D one to D three swimming, rowing, football, basketball, volleyball, doesn't matter. They're all loaded in the app. If you're an NCAA student athlete, you're in our app. You pick them, you pay them. That's it. It's all NCAA compliant and legal. It's awesome. All right. Very cool. So, but I, I do want to spend a little time on, on that top level. I'm trying to get a sense of sort of where we're at in the NIL world right now. We hear things like a top quarterback costs a million to two million in NIL money to recruit. How close, at least at that level, how close is NIL to just athlete compensation? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you're using it, right? And that, I think that goes back to you got to look at where does money come from in NIL, right? So so money initially was supposed to come from sponsors, mm-hmm. right? So, so I'm Nike or I'm the local pizza shop or whatever, and I want to pay an athlete to tweet about my brand or be in my commercial or whatever. That's a traditional sponsorship deal. Well, it's been kind of taken out of context in this NIL world, right? And so maybe 25% of the dollars are actually those things. And the other 75% of the dollars are money from boosters and donors being facilitated to players through NIL collectives and and other ways, right? And so uh, to answer your question directly, 
um, it it has been it is very much that that money is very much for those top athletes and the numbers can be a little silly uh, at times right and and but it is shifting that direction but there are the system as it's designed is not intended for that it is not intended to recruit players to come to your university in fact it specifically says not to use nil for that reason <laughs> right, and, and schools have gotten in trouble for this a little bit, but it's it mostly it seems like it's they just, just happening. Have, yeah, they're not in trouble for it. They just found a way around it, and that's the NIL collective. Yeah, and so and and take us if you would kind of hammer this out for us. I'm curious how these collectives are operating, and I mean if they're not you know promoting a product or you know selling their <laughs> name, image, image, and likeness in a more direct way. How is this above board? Yes. Yeah, so what the NIL Collective is, first of all, is a group of boosters and donors of that university that form an independent, supposedly it is independent of the university itself, and they raise funds. As I mentioned, about 25% of that is corporate sponsorships. The other is donor, right? Here's 50 grand, here's 10 grand, here's five grand, whatever. And then they take that. And how do they get that to the athletes? Well, they do have to do something in exchange for it. So the collective sets up, you know, a meet and greet with donors or some coaching clinics or an autograph signing, some sort of event. It's, it's a legitimate event to compensate the athletes. Now there's been issues about, yeah, well, you don't get paid $30,000 to do an hour clinic or whatever. Right. So there's been some of that and they've been, but I'm going to say this about the collectives. The collectives themselves are really great. And the majority of the people that run them are awesome. They're just trying to get money to the student athletes. And they're doing a really good job of it for those revenue sports and those high profile athletes. And, and, and they should be credited because I'm telling you what, there is no fame in this. There's no, like, these are just, they don't get paid for this. And most of them don't, right? They're, so so they, they're doing this because they love their university and they're trying to help their university. And it is a massive admin lift. What did I just say? And, and that's part of the problem too, Owen, which is an important aspect. If you're a smaller school, you don't have the resources to pay 300 or 400 or 500 student athletes. You don't have the people resources. So what do you do? You focus on 10 or 15 or 20 of your top athletes. Well, who are those guys, Owen? They're your men, your male athletes playing football or basketball. So it's not that they're doing that intentionally. They don't have the resources to expand it out because it's a flawed system. And I think that's why some of these things, these proposals and stuff will expand it out so all athletes and that the collectives or whoever's involved has the ability to expand this. My NIL pay specifically can help collectives in, you know, we provide access to every student athlete. And if they work with us, they have the ability to expand their reach. Right. So that that's one way, but there's a lot of other ways that they're trying to do that as well. Yeah. And what is the incentive for, if they did have the funds, you know, why go down, down the chain to, you know, the, the athletes, you know, the the rowing team, the volleyball team, the lacrosse team. Um, um, is it just so that they can recruit better athletes or 
what's the incentive for the schools to direct funds that direction if they if they have the the resources to do so? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you have that sport at your school, right? So there must be a reason why you support that sport. I mean, at the D3 level, activities are are generally, you know, sports are there to help give student-athletes, students activities, you know, and to participate. But, like, I, I think it's – why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't you want to – like, dude – if you're if you're the Alabama tennis team, you have professional, you have fantastic athletes from all over the world coming to your school to play tennis. Like these are not just you know Brent and Owen swinging a stick at the local high school. Okay, these are these are athletes that have trained since kids. They deserve to be compensated. They bring in fans and money and prestige to the university. Of course, why wouldn't they want to support them? The, the issue is, do they have the ability to do that, right? And I think that's what they're trying to figure out. Yeah. So direct athlete compensation looks like it's going to happen in some form. And obviously, there are a lot of questions about what form that takes. But it, something is going to happen, at least for you know football players, basketball players, maybe others. Uh, how is that going to change this whole landscape? I'm not sure it's going to be what you or other people think it's going to be. It is not going to look like a professional, um, a, a professional sport, right? Where, you know, Josh Allen gets a salary and Baker Mayfield, it's, it's not going to look like that. It, uh, dude, even if you look at, you know, president Baker's local most recent proposal, it's a bastardized version of, hey, let's pay players and think about how to make this as complicated as possible, right? Like, it's not, there, it doesn't, it's not like the, the simple, the, you know, Joe at the bar, right? You know, the whole, the whole thing back in the NFL when, you know, trying to decide, is it a catch? He has 50 drunk guys in a bar if it was a catch, right? If they all agree it was a catch, right? That's the same type of thing here, right? 50 drunk guys in a bar are going to say paying athletes is paying athletes, right? That's not how they're going to do it. You, if you've looked at this proposal, it just doesn't work that way, right? They're going to make you pay 30,000. If you're in the program, you have to you have to register for the program. It's a subsection of Division One. You have to pay thirty thousand dollars per athlete to get in. It has to be dollar for dollar, men to female. Well, if you pay five million dollars for your quarterback, I'll bet you five million dollars for your quarterback is more than these universities are paying any uh, all their female athletes combined. Maybe all the female athletes and all the Power Five combined, right? So I don't know how that dollar for dollar match thing is going to work. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but I, I think it needs to be done. I just, I, I just think it's, it's, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. I agree with it. I think women deserve to be equally compensated in sport. I just don't see how their proposal adds up. Right. I mean, it sounds like maybe the proposal and, you know, I, I don't know every single detail, but it, it creates something of a floor of compensation. But, you know, if you're still chasing those, yeah, one, two, $5 million deals, um, right. You still need something like the system we have now where donors are are just paying up. And, you know, some of that's coming from from actual brands. But, yeah, a lot of it is just people want a top quarterback at their school. And now that takes a couple million bucks. So do, do you think it's just going to be something that goes kind of alongside our current NIL system? Or is Baker trying to replace what we have now? 
I think what Baker is trying to honestly do and what his, and I've talked to him a couple times, you know, I think what he's been trying to do, and maybe it's because he was governor of Massachusetts. I think what he's trying to do is get the government to do it, to take care of it for him. Right. Which frankly is not how I would have handled it if I was the NCAA president. But, but to be fair, this is not his problem. He didn't create this issue. This was created by by multiple previous presidents of the NCAA, and he was brought in in a tough spot. So it's really hard when you weren't there at the beginning to now come in and fix the problem. So I think what his plan is, is to go to Congress and say, you regulate this for us, and then we'll put a rule set in based on those rules. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. That is incredibly dangerous because who knows your house best, Owen? Who should set the rules for your house? You. You know your house. Do you want me setting the rules for your house? What time we clean up? What time we go to bed? No, because I don't know anything about what you do. Right. It seems like the sort of thing you would do if Congress was going to get involved anyway. But they've been actively lobbying the federal government to try to make something happen here. Yes, they're lobbying the government to get involved. Now, the good news is the one thing the federal government is doing that's really good is they are reaching out to people to get input and opinions on this from all sorts of different types of people. Myself, I am involved in the Commerce, the Senate Commerce Committee, right? So I get asked my opinion. I get asked what I think, right? So that's good. I've written letters to to the House of Representatives, to Senate. They've been put on the record in the congressional record, right? I've given my opinion on how I would handle it, and that's good. I'm a business owner. I'm in the space. I'm a consumer product in NIL. I have opinion that can help shape the conversation, right? I think that doing that is a positive thing, right? They're getting athletes. They're getting they're getting coaches, they're getting businesses, they're getting all parts of the life cycle input. That's a really great, um, that's that's the benefit, right? I think people just have a negative concept source. Oh my gosh, we're going to let the government take, you know, handle it for us. But at the end of the day, from what I've seen, they're handling it the right way, at least initially, right? You're going to have some whack job bills that you're like, eh. but at the end of the day, the ones that like T- Senator Ted Cruz's bill is a pretty good solution that most people kind of think makes sense, right? You're going to get some logical sense solutions. And I think that's what Baker is trying to get, mm-hmm. right? It makes sense. I mean, that's his world. He understands it. Uh, I just, we've touched on a lot of parts of this world. What's, what's uh, you know, another Part of this evolution that we should touch on, you know, in the sort of college athlete, you know, athlete compensation world that that you see kind of coming down the road toward us in 2024. Yeah, I think and this is what I tell uh, the other CEOs in the space that I interact with. We've scratched the surface on what we can do to benefit student athletes. My mission, dude, I had a very fine, nice, cushy little corporate executive job, and I jumped out of the deep end into into this brand new, volatile space running a tech startup. 
right? And the reason why I did it is, is because I saw an opportunity to really make a difference in the lives of a group that I thought was being underrepresented, and that's student athletes. So my goal is to love and serve student athletes. And I think that what you can find is, if you're if you're if you're looking at this like uh, like the the gold gold rush in the 1800s, right? We found like five percent of the gold, right? So there's a really exciting opportunity. This is what I tell my my uh, my fellow CEOs is if we can all kind of come together and figure this thing out together, we can really make an impact. If you think about it, how many universities have collectives? 150. How many schools are there? 1,100. That's less than 10% are being represented by collectives. Even if collectives go away, right, that's still 90% of the schools are being unrepresented that way. How many athletes get NIL money? 10% of all the athletes get NIL money? There's such an opportunity here that I think that's where this is going to go. I really am praying and hoping that this is where this goes, is that it doesn't shrink and, and, and focus only on those top, but it expands and it democratizes NIL. And we have the opportunity to help all student athletes and they have an opportunity to make money and help their journey in college a little easier. All right. Well, we'll, we'll be watching the whole thing unfold. Brent Chapman, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Owen. Appreciate it, man. Have a great one. That's it for today. Enjoy your first weekend of 2024. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and drop us a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. See you on Monday.